I'm Lisa Dale Miller. You're about to hear the second of two talks I gave on the topic of non-attachment. I highly suggest that you listen to that first talk prior to hearing this one. That first talk really lays out the full range of the Buddhist teachings on non-attachment and non-clinging and gives you a basis for this talk which covers the practical application of non-attachment and non-clinging in daily life. How many people feel like they want to share something about what they experienced during the week? There's one, two, three, four, okay. Doesn't have to be in that order. Um, I'm going to invite you to share whatever feels right for you to share, but also to um, be succinct. I get to, um, got to notice how in group situations, I really like to um, be the funny guy, the witty, the, the, the guy who you know, notices things and brings up interesting you know, insights or whatever. And, um, and so I got to see how attached I was to that in group dynamics and um, got to try to pull back and allow the group dynamic to happen without me inserting my wit and charm. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, that was kind of interesting. Juicy. I like that. Really okay, so that, that was the identity piece. <laughs> yes. Yeah, but I was really, I mean, you know, I, I cling to that. To not do that took some effort. <laughs> Beautiful experience. Thank you. Three days before last Sunday, I, I hurt myself pretty badly on a boating accident. Um, I, I really strained a hamstring and a, and a shoulder. So, so I've sort of been in some pain since then. And what I've noticed is that First of all, my mind goes to, you know, damn that happened. You know, that's, I, uh, I, I'm, I'm upset because I'm, I'm, I'm attached to being upset about that accident happening. Um, and in the present, I'm, I found myself clinging to identity of being injured. And even as I'm getting treatments and taking care, I'm looking forward to the future. When is this going to be gone? When is it going to be gone? When am I going to be me again? Because I don't like the me that is the injured one. And so that's, that's the noticing. <laughs> Thank you. What I noticed is how much I cling to two things, which are self-judgment and um, self-loathing. And, and, and the front part of my brain recognized that you could just let go of this. And, and I, I spent three years working on self-meta just to do those kinds of things. Um, but the other part of what I noticed is how sort of primitively rooted it is, the clinging, and, and that makes it very difficult. Yeah, we all know that one well. Thank you so much. Okay, way in the back. So actually, I want to talk about having been on retreat, come off retreat, and noticed that something was just gone. A, a specific uh, aversive reaction just simply wasn't there anymore. And, you know, maybe that tomorrow, but it's lovely to notice this. And I remembered from early in my practice that that was often the way things happen. But I wanted to give up. I couldn't. But things took care of themselves eventually, <coughs> which is a big draw for staying mindful so we know when that sort of happens. Wow. Um, 
And then I would like to report that it's still true. The stuff that I'd really be able to let go of is numerous and present. Beautiful. Yeah. And that is so wise and really important to hear. A lot of times when people have the experience of that spontaneous release, um, they either don't notice it, or if they notice it, the next thing that comes up is, this can't be real, it's going to come back, and then they're not appreciating and experiencing, just resting in the experience of that liberation. So bravo to you, that you not only recognize it's gone, but you're actually able to just let it be. Very, very important. Thank you. In all of these, I think it was apparent that identity clinging is really the crux. And of course, the Buddha talked about not self, not clinging to concepts and notions about self. Tonight, I'm going to elaborate on this from a practical point of view, because there are three ways to describe what happens when we stop grasping. Um, and these are three ways that you can actually be aware of, but also cultivate in your daily life. But just to begin with a basic frame, vipassana actually means to see with penetration. And when we see with penetration, we are not involved in the project of clinging. So what does it mean to see with penetration? Well, it means to see impermanence, to see the tragic dimension of our experience, and to know the truth that life is not about me or mine. And I, I actually think that you heard that in these four beautiful experiences expressed, that in each of the experiences, there was some aspect of self that was noticed that was causing upset. But the penetration into the impermanent nature, number one, and that was something that we really got last week in the suttas, knowing the impermanent nature of all phenomena, including your internal mental and emotional phenomena, is critical. Once you know, frankly, once you recognize, you are liberated right there in the recognition. The question is, can you act from that liberation? Can you let be in the knowing without grasping again at the delusion? So that's, that's a critical aspect. And I, I, I want to give you a very, very, very down-to-earth example of this. This was from the New York Times yesterday. Um, one of the New York Times reporters who's lived in Nepal for quite some time wrote this beautiful article, you can see it online, about how grace and hope have been showing up spontaneously all around her in Kathmandu, where she lives. So I'll just read you a paragraph. It's, it's, it's a wonderful example of what it looks like when you have a culture that is really steeped in the Upanishadic and the Dharmic teachings. And they really are. They, the Nepalese really live this on a day-to-day -day basis in their way. So she said, 
Neighbors were helping neighbors. Those with motorcycles were ferrying cheap plastic canvas for tents from shops that remained open. Many people stopped us and asked if we needed food or water. Now remember, these are people that don't have very much. And they were not in their homes anymore. Okay, either their homes were destroyed or they just weren't in there because the aftershocks are so big. Everybody's living on the streets anyway. Several invited us to spend the night with them. This is why I love Nepal. People here help one another because they know the government often cannot. They reach out to one another and they persevere. They open their shops because what else can one do when the world is upside down? My heart aches for Nepal and what has been lost, but I am buoyed by the generous spirit of its people. My son and I know that life here will get worse in the days and weeks ahead as fuel and water run low, but we also know we are all in this together. So this is a very beautiful example of what happens when people live steeped in the teachings of the Upanishads through Hinduism and the Buddhist teachings. And I don't know if any of you have spent time in Nepal. I was there for a month over 20 years ago now. The Dharma is being practiced daily, just, just in the living, not as anything special. It's just the way they are. So what they're not clinging to right now is the idea that their houses were permanent, that an earthquake wasn't going to happen in, by the way, the most earthquake-prone part of the world. And so they're free to do what needs to be done, to live on the street knowing that nothing terrible is going to happen to them living on the street because everyone's living on the street and they're all in it together. This is a very, very practical, down-to-earth example of what non-grasping looks like. As I said in the meditation, we live in an extremely earthquake-prone part of the world. And just think for a moment of how much we grasp at our entitlement to our houses and water and all the things. And whether or not we would be as graceful and generous and kind and caring and loving um, in a 7.8 earthquake with like 6.77 aftershocks. I mean, just, I know Loma Prieta was big, but it wasn't that big. This was a massive quake. The thing about recognizing impermanence and the tragic dimension of experience and of course not self, is that it allows us to know the totality of our experience and the nature of its unsatisfactoriness. This is critical. If you cling to the idea that everything is supposed to be perfect, everything is supposed to go fine, everything is supposed to stay the way it is, you will suffer, I guarantee you, because that's not the nature of existence. Life is full of everything, the whole spectrum. And our job is not to cling to the idea that life can't be the way it's going to show up. So how do we do that? Here's the recipe. 
non-grasping, non-hatred, and non-delusion. The Buddha was very clear about what liberation is. Liberation is accomplished by an unconditioned mind freed from its own mental afflictions and devoid of greed, hatred, and delusion. An unconditioned mind is empty because it knows its interdependent nature. It is signless because it has gone beyond the permanency of concepts and labels. And it is desireless because it is released from delusional conditioned wanting. In practical terms, non-grasping is equanimity. Non-hatred is compassion. And non-delusion is clarity. This is the recipe. If you want to cultivate non-grasping, you cultivate equanimity. If you want to know non-hatred, you cultivate compassion. Your example is actually a beautiful um, way of interpreting that. Knowing our own self-loathing, there's only one recipe for that, the loving-kindness and compassion practice. <coughs> Non-delusion, clarity. Knowing things as they are. That is the antidote for delusion. So let's look at these three elements. Let's first look at equanimity. Those of you who know about the Brahma Viharas, equanimity is the last of the four divine abodes. We say abode, but also Vihara is translated as dwelling. This is very important. Abode sounds like it's somewhere, you know, the divine abode, it's out there. <laughs> you do compassion practice and you end up in the pure land of the Buddhas. But actually, if you say dwelling, what it does is it embodies it. It grounds it here in your body, your life. It's embedded, it's embodied, it's engaged. Equanimity is grounding here in what the body actually experiences, what your five senses experience, not the story your mind is telling you about what's occurring, but the real deal. Even if it's pain, as you said. If you drop in and you just experience physical pain as it is, trust me, it is so much better than the story your mind has running about the pain. I guarantee you. Because your body's experience is devoid of, this pain will never end, uh, why wish I was back the way I was when I wasn't in pain? That's, your body doesn't know anything about that. That's the narrative that your delusional mind. So you <coughs> drop in and you experience things as they are. That's the liberation. The Buddhist texts are pretty clear about equanimity. It's described as a neutral feeling tone of experience or a mental quality of impartiality or mental equipoise cultivated through the different kinds of mind training that we do um, in Buddhist practice. Equanimity is not a shield you put up in front of you in order to be able to tolerate the horribleness of life. It's really not like that. It's more of a 
dwelling of complete openness. That's equanimity. You're open to whatever arises. Because it's going to arise whether you want it to arise or not. Is, it, is that not true? I mean, if it arises and there's something you can do about it in the next moment, by all means, do something about it. But for the most part, experience occurs. And as long as we are fighting what is naturally occurring already, you can't stop an earthquake. It's not possible to stop the basic biological reaction and response to an earthquake. It's going to be sheer terror. Trust me, that is, for those of you who've been in them, how many of you have been in an earthquake? How many of you, right, so pretty much all the hands, me too. Our job is to be responsive, to be able to do what's wise in a moment like that, to protect ourselves, to get ourselves to safety, and not to be able to get lost in, I wish this earthquake wasn't happening, or I wish it hadn't happened. It happened. And that's an extreme example. But think of all the things in your life that occur, and then we get stuck grasping it. I wish that hadn't happened. I wish I hadn't done that. This is suffering. The openness allows us to recognize and rest in all of our responses. Frankly, even the ones like self-loathing and self-judgment. You know, if those thoughts come, if they arise, they've already arisen. You, you can't stop what already occurred. However, if you recognize, oh, here I am stuck in my thoughts, my ruminating thoughts about what a terrible person I am, as soon as you recognize, you know the thoughts are there. You are no longer the thoughts. That's equanimity. That's a moment of equanimity. You are no longer the thoughts. You know those thoughts are occurring. At that moment, you have the choice. Okay, now what do I do? Do I go back into my unconsciousness and get lost again in my ego fixation that I am bad? No. I remain watchful. I observe. I watch. And what happens is, those thoughts are impermanent phenomena. And when you watch them, they fall away. I can tell you to go do metta until the pigs fly in heaven. But the truth is, the most powerful thing you can do is rest in awareness. Awareness is not an antidote. Awareness is reality. When you recognize and then you rest in awareness and you allow phenomena to do what they do, what they do is they drop away because that's their nature. All phenomena, internal and external, arise, exist, and pass away. The only time they don't pass away is when we're caught and we're fixated on them and then they stick around, they're sticky. We have an, actually a term for that, they're affectively sticky. Awareness is that which unglues everything. It allows experience to be as it is, which is impermanent. It comes and goes. And equanimity 
is awareness. There is no equanimity without awareness. Now, equanimity does not mean indifference. It's very important to remember. It is not indifference. Equanimity doesn't mean you don't care. You can still care deeply. It just means your ego is not getting wrapped up in the identity of I am the savior, I am the one who is coming, or I am the one who can't fix this and I'm a terrible person because I can't fix it. There's no identity clinging with equanimity. And awareness doesn't mean you're indifferent either, by the way. You don't become some unfeeling, uncaring, unthinking human being when you are aware. I want to speak the equanimity phrases because I think it's a way to really deeply get equanimity. Just like the metaphrases, which people use, may be safe, may be happy, there's, there's all kinds of versions of them, in order to well-wish happiness, well-being for yourself or others or all beings. The equanimity phrases can be used in the same way. You can actually do them as practice. They're very different, though, and here they are. All beings are the owners of their karma. Their wishes, their happiness and unhappiness depends upon their actions, not upon my wishes. Can I say that again? All beings are the owners of their own karma. Their happiness and unhappiness depends on their actions, not upon my wishes. That's equanimity. The knowing what is mine, what is theirs, knowing wisely what I can do, what I cannot do, how I can be of help, how I cannot be of help. This is critical with equanimity. So equanimity has at its core wisdom. There cannot be equanimity without wisdom. And from that core arises true non-referential compassion. So as we said, and as I said, it's a recipe, the second aspect of not clinging is non-hatred. And how do we do that? We do that with compassion. This morning, Anam Tupton was teaching. He said, the ultimate force for human transformation is the heart. And that's really what compassion is about. If you want to change the world, compassion is the ticket. The Buddhist psychological definition of compassion underscores the inseparability of compassion and wisdom. Compassion is a quivering heart in response to suffering imbued with clear comprehension of suffering, inspiring a genuine determination to end suffering. So that's my definition of what compassion is. So it's a quivering of the heart in response to suffering, imbued with clear comprehension of suffering. That's critical. That's the wisdom piece. We see suffering. I mean, the, just the pictures of Nepal 
Uh, it's just unbelievable, and the heart just quivers. And I mean, I don't know about you, but I just I want to run there. I want to help. I want to do something. And yet, my wise mind shows up and says, "Well, you don't speak Nepalese, and the airports are hardly open. And even though you've worked in the humanitarian aid field before, and you've been in war zones, it's not possible for you to get there right now. So that's." a wish that is useless for me at this point because that's not the way I'm going to fulfill helping in Nepal at this point. There are other things I can do from here that would be much more helpful. That's the wisdom part. And that's the third part of the definition, which is it inspires a genuine determination to end suffering by knowing what you can actually do, how you can wisely help to end suffering in any given moment. Of course, that may seem like an overwhelming task for imperfect beings like us. But regardless of limitation, we can each genuinely aspire to end human suffering. The inseparability of compassion and wisdom differentiates the Buddhist notion of compassion from other traditional conceptualizations of compassion. In Buddhist psychology, one who clearly comprehends the causes of unsatisfactoriness actively seeks to understand his or her own suffering and avert its arising. When other related suffering is encountered, that being feels moved by a tender-heartedness toward others in distress. They say, they suffer as I suffer. They too endure the unsatisfactoriness of human experience as best they can. This deep relationality dissolves the conditional nature of referential compassion and transforms it into an illimitable, non-referential compassion for all beings with the unimpeded willingness to help end suffering. And this aspect of non-referential is critical for non-hatred because you can't be preferential and have non-hatred. That means you're still averse to something. If you have a preference, you're still averse to something or someone. So the non-referential aspect of compassion is critical when we are talking about not clinging. It means that you can be in the presence of something or someone that has done something terrible and still recognize this truth. That is a human being who has suffered and is suffering, and the pain they have caused has arisen from their suffering. And I, too, am a human being who suffers. Now, I know people have a lot of trouble with what I just said. Maybe some of you are having some trouble digesting what I just said. But it is the way, this is the path you are on. The path you are on is not a path of preferentiality. You don't get to pick and choose who you're going to be compassionate toward in the Buddhist teachings. Because all beings suffer. And all affliction arises from the glaciers, mental and emotional suffering.
It's important in the Buddhist context to know that when we talk about compassion, you know, we're, we're asking a lot of ourselves. We, we are really asking to be open-hearted and to recognize the equality of suffering. All terrible things that occur in this world occur because the human beings who are perpetrating them are suffering. And they too deserve to be liberated from their suffering. So we can recognize wisely that they are suffering and we can do what we can to either try to liberate them from their suffering when we can or to wish them freedom from their suffering. So the last aspect of non-clinging is clarity. And of course, you can't do non-referential compassion if you don't have clarity about the nature of the way things are. And this is so important for being able to go beyond hope and fear which last week I mentioned is how Tibetan Buddhism terms craving and aversion, they say hope and fear. And I think it's a great way when you're in your life and daily to really pay attention to craving and aversion. Are you hoping for something other than what is? And are you clinging to the hope that something that is going to come other than what is? Or are you grasping at your fear about what might come? And in both of these cases, there's no freedom in either one of them. So Tibetan Buddhists are famous for saying, let go of hope and fear. They are equally going to create suffering for you. I tell patients that hope and fear fuel mental time travel and obstruct the mind's capacity for insight, intention, and presence. Hope is ethereal. It lives in an undetermined imaginative future, disconnected from personal accountability and intentionality. Fear belongs to the past, but does not mentally stay there. Agitation in the psyche propels fearful mentation into the present, where its distress instantaneously transmutes fear into worry about the future. Consequently, much of our moment-to-moment -moment inner experience is taken up with habitual rejecting and accepting. The result is the unsatisfactoriness of unawareness, or what cognitive neuroscience calls cognitive affective automaticity. The cure for automaticity is awareness, and awareness is a choice. When we actively choose to rest in awareness, its immeasurable display is revealed. Recognizing the luminosity of mind in the immediacy of experience dissolves internal fixation on hope and fear. Knower, known, and knowing inter are, and the psyche becomes an unobstructed vessel for spontaneous responsiveness and dynamic skillfulness. So the clarity is inherent in awareness. Awareness is like a pristine mirror. Whatever comes in front of awareness, awareness knows that. 
exactly as it is, because it's completely open-hearted in its ability to recognize. There is no obstruction. Awareness is beyond hope and fear. It just knows. It's your innate luminosity. And this is the nature of mind, is innate luminosity. So the pristine mirror reflects accurately whatever is in front of it. It doesn't try to make it go away. It doesn't try to keep it. It doesn't try to make it something other than what it is. It just accurately reflects. That's it. That's what it does. And when we rest in awareness, we have the capacity for that kind of open-heartedness. Anything can come. Again, this is that equanimity. But the equanimity arises because we're completely clear about what comes. We know it as it is, and we are open-hearted to whatever comes, even if it's a distressful experience. We can be open-hearted as it arises. What we do with it is up to us. And that's where the skillfulness comes in. If a person is not clearly recognizing what arises, they are twisted in their capacity to respond. They can't respond. They become reactive and fixed. So clarity means non-reactively being aware of our own reactivity. Because guess what? We're animals, so our reactivity is going to happen. It happens long before you can think about it. <laughs> but it, once you recognize your reactivity is there, once you recognize the habitual um, patterns, the habit of conjuring up self-loathing, self-hatred, no matter what's occurring, that's a mental habit. Once you recognize that kind of reactivity, you can rest in the knowing of it. And that openness to it allows you to dynamically respond to it with wisdom and compassion. It's not about getting rid of your reactivity. Just let that go, OK? You're not going to end up in some buddhic idyllic state. Trust me, you're a human being. That's not what it's about. It's about seeing reactivity for what it is and not getting caught up in it. Because it's going to pass away. Once you recognize, it will fall away because you're not clinging and fixated on it. That's the key. Now, I know this takes some trust, but the great thing is you're going to get to see it for yourself because it will happen. There's a wonderful saying by um, one of the great Chan masters, Hui Neng. He said, even in the midst of thought, there is no thought. What does that mean? It means even while discursive thoughts are happening, and discursive thoughts are all of your concepts, all of your beliefs, all of the mental, horrible narratives that we hold on to about how terrible we are and how terrible everybody else is and all of that stuff. That's all concepts. It's all discursive. It's all narrative. Those are the thoughts that even while they're happening, there is awareness which is beyond thought, not thought. So I want to end here 
with the Buddha's teaching. And I want to show you what equanimity, clarity, um, and compassion look like through a sutta. This is from the Samyutta Nikaya. It's 137, 21 through 24. The Blessed One was staying near Savati. And he said, there are three foundations of mindfulness that the Noble One cultivates to instruct a group. So the Buddhist is going to tell us how he does what he does. Are you ready? Compassionate and seeking their welfare, the teacher teaches the Dhamma to the disciples out of compassion. He says, this is for your welfare, for your happiness. When his disciples do not want to hear or exert their minds to understand, the Tathagata is not satisfied and feels no satisfaction. Yet, he dwells unmoved, mindful and fully aware. This is the first foundation of mindfulness that the Noble One cultivates. Compassionate and seeking their welfare, the teacher teaches the Dhamma to the disciples out of compassion. He says, this is for your welfare, for your happiness. When some of his disciples do not want to hear or exert their minds to understand, the Tathagata is not satisfied and feels no satisfaction. Yet he is not dissatisfied and feels no dissatisfaction. He dwells in equanimity, mindful and fully aware. This is called the second foundation of mindfulness that the Noble One cultivates. Compassionate and seeking their welfare, the teacher teaches the Dhamma to the disciples out of compassion. He says, this is for your welfare, for your happiness. When his disciples will hear and exert their minds to understand, the Tathagata is satisfied and feels satisfaction. Yet, he dwells unmoved, mindful, and fully aware. This is called the third foundation of mindfulness that the Noble One cultivates. So, this is the Buddha telling you he has feelings. He actually has opinions. <laughs> when his disciples don't listen to what he says, he's not satisfied. Yet, he dwells in equanimity, mindful, and fully aware. He doesn't get caught in what a bunch of dummies they are and how they're not listening. No, he just rests. And when they do listen, and it's totally awesome, and they're completely getting it, okay, he's fine with that. But still, he's unmoved, mindful, and fully aware. This is equanimity. This is wisdom. This is, remember the equanimity phrases? They are the owners of their own karma. As much as he might wish, it is going to be what it is going to be. And so you too, you too, can cultivate the unmovedness of awareness. Notice, fully aware, resting in awareness. That is the key. That is the key to non-clinging. Any questions? (laughs) (laughs) 
is interesting to me is that your, um, I've never heard this before, the idea that equanimity is the response to clinging as opposed to renunciation. And, and it, that's a really new and interesting idea to me. Well, that's very interesting. Did you all hear that? I'll repeat it. She had heard that the response to um, clinging is renunciation. When you renounce, you're not clinging. But you know, the truth is, you can cling to renunciation too. <laughs> that can just become another clinging. So I have heard that too. So she was saying that it was very interesting to her that equanimity is actually something that one cultivates in order to undercut grasping. Yeah. It's inspiring. Good. I'm glad you're inspired. That's great. Other questions? Yes. Yeah, I, um, the part about compassion and having compassion, uh, you call it non-referential, which yes. is no uh, picking and choosing. No picking and choosing, yeah. yes. Um, <laughs> I really got that from um, learning something of our chants when we were chanting about, you know, uh, including even the Lord of Death. And at first I thought, well, you know, why not? I would think I would have more compassion now for those who are causing the most pain because if they were not suffering, that suffering that they're causing would then not be occurring. So to me, it makes perfect sense that you would have compassion for people who are causing suffering. I am so happy to hear that it makes perfect sense. <laughs> that is the fruit of your practice, my dear that it makes perfect sense that one would have ultimately the most compassion for those who are deeply suffering. I like, the, um, I like something that Donald Rothberg always says, which kind of speaks to what you're talking about, and that is um, when someone's acting out or, or behaving in a mean way, look for the trap. Look for the trap. So Donald Rothberg says when someone is acting out and acting in a mean way, look for the trap. And it just refers to uh -huh. if you see a dog in the woods and he looks so cute and you go over to pet him and then he starts snarling and growling at you. Um, it's not because he's a mean dog, it's because you look around and he has a little trap on him and he can't, he's in pain. Okay. He's suffering. Great. So it's, it's a response to at first thinking, oh, people are just being a jerk, whereas what you're saying, what he's saying, is look for the trap, know that they're suffering. So I yes. keep that in my mind a lot when, when I deal with people that are not, and when I deal with when I'm that way too. Thank you, thank you. And thanks to Donald Rothberg, who is a wonderful teacher as well. Yes. Anybody else? Yes. I'm, you know, relatively new to uh, concepts of Buddhism and um, I'm trying to get a grasp, uh, get a handle on compassion and equanimity. And, um, an example uh, of someone who is in a marriage, let's say, who is unhappy in this marriage, and uh, their partner is suffering from an um, organic uh, psychological issue, let's say. And this person who is trying to you know, find the spiritual path in all of this is is trying to find uh, compassion and equanimity in in dealing with this situation, and and there's nothing really that he can do to change things. He can just be there for them. Mm -hmm. 
but yet he suffers. Yes. And every day he suffers. Nothing changes. But yet he, he goes in further inside himself and tries to find um, peace with it all. So that is not wisdom. What is that? Going further inside oneself and trying to find peace as an antidote to um, a set of circumstances that are external, that appear to be intractable, is probably not what, at least not what Buddhist psychology would recommend. Okay? The, the reason is because it depends on what kind of peace the person is looking for. If they're looking for an escape, that's not peace. Because what wisdom is about is wisdom is knowing things as they actually are. So this is a beautiful example because both people are suffering equally. And they're both suffering from what would appear to be an incapacity to recognize their own ability to arise out of suffering. Neither of them are going beyond the set of circumstances to try to work together to find that path that will ultimately lead to a lessening of suffering for both of them. And that's the reason why it appears as though Buddhism is very self-centered. You know, you go inside, you meditate, you let go of the world, but that's not really what Buddhism is. Buddhism is about reaching out to try to find the resources that are necessary to bring some kind of deeper understanding of the situation so that both people can act in a way that is wise and leads to non-harming. There's a lot of harming going on in this situation. I work all day long with people who have mental maladies and I can tell you they still have awareness. They still have the capacity to recognize the nature of their suffering and do what they can to lessen the suffering for themselves and others. People who are in relationships with these kinds of people get lost in habits of enabling. They mistake what help looks like. So they also need to have wisdom, the wisdom, so that they can be able to free themselves in that situation, whatever that ends up looking like. Even if it looks like staying in the situation with a level of freedom that comes from a deeper level of understanding about how suffering is being created and how the suffering can be alleviated. Does this make sense to you? Absolutely, yeah. Yes. Uh, so there's, so you've answered my, my question. So it, this is about, um, it's not about just trying to maintain and deal with, with, exactly. with suffering. It's about going beyond it and getting it, it uh, work, working through it, getting it, getting yes. a solution to it all. Yes, and going beyond means you got to go through something to get somewhere. You, you can't do bypass. That's not part of the Buddhist path. We, we don't do spiritual bypass very well. <laughs> well, actually, I shouldn't say that. There's a lot of Buddhists who do spiritual bypass really well. But, you know, the, the reality of the Buddhist teachings is not about that. Yeah, so it's, it's always about 
clarity, knowing things as they are, having the compassion to be able to be with the way it is, and then using those two to become inactive in your effort to alleviate suffering, to create a life that is worth living. May, may your seeking lead you to much deeper understanding. Yes. Oh, I think we are out of time. This, can I just say this has been a really wonderful two weeks for me. It was a tough topic. And um, I'm so glad that I got to do this with all of you.